Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms, and yes, including video games. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Austin Moorhead, who's written a fascinating story about the first season of the Overwatch Video Game League. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Austin Moorhead, author of Young Guns, Obsession, Overwatch, and the Future of Gaming, published by Hatchet Books, and uh, it's I guess it went on sale March 31st. Yep. Okay. First published date. Okay. Well, thank you for speaking with me. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So first, um, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? So I'd always wanted to write, and uh, I'd spent my career in the, in the business world, uh, mostly in consulting and, and uh, uh, advertising agencies. And, you know, I had an idea along the lines of George Plumpton's paper lion, where he, he went in the 60s to try out uh, he wanted to be like the third string quarterback of the Detroit Lions and try to get on in like some exhibition games as quarterback. And it's an amazing book. You know, he's behind the scenes. He gets the playbook. He meets all the players and he collects these incredible behind the scenes stories, uh, which, you know, now you could never do that with an NFL team. You know, they're so, they're so closed up. And so I love the idea though. And I'm a lifelong gamer. And I sort of thought maybe I could do something like that for esports where I sort of try to, try to, try to, try to make it onto some sort of, pro team, although I'm realistic about the fact that I'm in my late 30s and my reflexes have declined significantly, <laughs> uh, even from the point where I was at best a marginally above average gamer. So uh, I knew like that I was going to top out at a, at, a, at a low level, but you know, Plimpton kind of had the same situation. He didn't actually end up achieving his goal, but it was still just, it was still just a great uh, behind the scenes book. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that could work for esports, where it's still kind of open. It's a, especially in America, it's a very new phenomenon um there's a lot of money behind for instance the overwatch league there's you know hundreds of millions of dollars behind it mm-hmm. but uh it's typically organizations run by younger people and i thought it would be uh they'd be more open to the idea so i originally wrote a proposal uh very much along the lines of sort of paper line for esports mm-hmm. uh went to about 30 editors and you know 29 uh agreed it was not good mm-hmm. and one said well, yeah, it's not good, but uh, maybe if you did something like third person and instead of like having a bunch of different games you're going to try to qualify for, you just pick this like pick one league you think is the most interesting and just cover all the people um, in, in that. So it, it, my original idea didn't necessarily come to fruition, but it did lead to a publisher being uh, being willing to engage me to write a book. Mm-hmm. So um, just to give my listeners sort of a, a background of what you've written about, because I've started reading it and it's really engaging. Um, and I can I can Thank see you. the, you know, the the where you said you, you've worked um, in the financial world. I can see that uh, in what I'm reading. One of the questions I have, and perhaps this question can help you explain to readers what's going on here is why why have leagues uh, where, when you can instead have like amateur teams compete and just rise up the ranks, you know, maybe like a world series of poker kind of thing where amateurs can become stars, you know, why have an established league? So there's a few reasons. Um, you know, also that, that's how the, that's how esports mostly was up until very recently. Um, you know, most of the tournaments, like they would start out, the game would come out, tournaments would be organized by whoever thought it was a good idea to throw a tournament, you know? Like AMD, the chip maker, might realize like, oh, a lot of people use our chips to play video games. We should sponsor a tournament, put some prize money on the line, and be able to advertise against it. 
mm-hmm. and then kind of anyone uh, could could set up a tournament, and then uh, that that model is like somewhat chaotic. Uh, you know, you you don't really know for sure in a, in a given year if you're a player if you can like make a living on it because it's going to depend on how many how, how your tournament winnings go. Or as an owner, you know, it's it's it can be difficult to land sponsors against a team where they don't really know the team going to be around next year. Uh, and how, and how's the team going to perform? And so I think, I think the reasoning behind the league was like twofold. One, um, you know, publishers of these games probably saw it as a, as a revenue opportunity where, you know, take Blizzard and Overwatch. Uh, they, they, they created the game of Overwatch. They sold, you know, like 40 million copies in the first year. And, uh, then by putting a league on top of it and ke- and keeping a share of the revenues of that league, it's it's a way to continue to make money off the game. Mm-hmm. And in terms of why would they go towards a uh, traditional sports franchise model, uh, you know, if you look at what's relegation leagues, like you really only see it in traditional sports um, and like European at the highest uh, level of soccer play, mm-hmm. they will typically relegate. I think Premier League relegates like the bottom three teams mm-hmm. at the end of a season. And so that creates a lot of excitement of like, you know, these sort of like, uh, scruffier teams from the, from the lower divisions can, uh, scout and, and play their way up until the, in, into the top tier. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're esports and you're kind of trying to break in and gain legitimacy, you, you kind of want to attract that, that, that like billionaire sports team owner. And I think it's much easier to attract them if you say, we have an official league, we're setting the number of franchises. And you're going to have that franchise as long as the league is around. There's no risk of your team performing poorly and just disappearing out of the bottom, um, which would substantially dis- uh, you know, decrease the value of a team. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, like you look at the Cleveland Browns, the NFL, uh, they have not been a good team for a long time, but they still uh, you know, get one 30-second share of the you know, TV deals and sponsorship deals and the like. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it provides stability. It it provides an opportunity to attract like big time owners to the league, and then it also becomes easier if if the publisher of the game is the one who's managing some of those high level sponsorship opportunities. It's a way to to engage with some of the big advertisers, like like T Mobile was a major sponsor of Overwatch League in the first season. Mm-hmm. So you you kind of need to put all like all those pieces are. Uh, you know, kind of come together more easily if the publisher is managing it and running it as a franchise. I think it's in chapter two you were pointing out with, I think it was the uh, the, uh, the the League of Legends uh, League. I was reading stuff about um, players uh, might just disappear. They might not get along, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you don't have the franchise uh, model uh, which, which is like, uh, you know, which is like, say, Blizzard's saying, these are the only teams that are allowed to compete in this game, and mm-hmm. this is the only league they can play in. Mm-hmm. If it's kind of the Wild West out there, uh, and you're a player on a team, and you're like, I don't know, you're just mad at your owner, or you're mad at your fellow players, mm-hmm. uh, you could just jump to some other team, or form your own team, and then the next tournament that comes up, you could try to qualify and play in. So yeah, I, th- I think you're dead on that, uh, uh, the lack of a franchise model uh, means that there's there, there going to be more more disruption mm-hmm. in team dynamics. Whereas an Overwatch League player cannot just leave their Overwatch League team and go form their own thing and still play in the Overwatch League. They're going to have to stay within the within the, the the bounds of it. Okay, so the Overwatch League was going to create sort of a new kind of league system then, 
um, with new kind of rules and, and controls in place? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it, it is very closely modeled after traditional sports. Uh, the, the, the teams are city-based, and, you, you know, you get a certain uh, city region that, that you're only the team that can really market the Overwatch League there, try to build a local fan base. And, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't have these, like, uh, the situation where, like, there's some sort of tournament play-in where some, you know, six guys you've never even heard of could potentially all of a sudden be competing against you mm-hmm. in the league next year. So what about the issue of, you know, a game doesn't necessarily stay popular for more than a few years. Were there ways that they were, did they have ways to transition to the next popular game? Or was the idea to have Overwatch be that game for whatever number of years? Yeah. So I think, you know, League of Legends and Counter-Strike have been popular for like 10 years as, mm-hmm. as like esports. Mm-hmm. But generally, if you, most games come out, they're like very popular when they first come out because it's like the new thing. And, um, and then, yeah, over time, you see the, the, the like player base decline. And so th- th- that's a challenge as a team owner because, uh, you know, you're trying to all, you're trying to make sure you have teams in the hot games. And then as they die off, you might sort of think about like, does it make sense to have a team in this game anymore? It didn't like fully catch on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, for Overwatch particularly, um, I, I, I couldn't confirm this cause this, you know, this is like confidential, but it, my understanding was, uh, Blizzard essentially said to them, listen, we, you've seen us refresh our IP. You know, we've had World of Warcraft out for 10 plus years and they keep, introducing new expansions and tweaking the game. And so, and that, the same, the same for their other titles. So I think they said you could trust us to refresh the IP. And to the extent we're not capable of doing that, you know, if this thing is not successful at the end, we, we could look at something where the owners might be able to like recruit, recruit some of their loss if we're not able to commit to keeping an active player base. So I don't know the exact details of that. This is kind of like rumors, but mm-hmm. they have announced Watch 2. Uh, they announced it at BlizzCon last year, which is in November. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Overwatch 2 is a is a refresh of the game. There's, you know, the original Overwatch game is six versus six first person shooter. Now there's going to be an opportunity to play on a team of say four players against, uh, you know, environment PVE player versus environment. So you play against the computer essentially mm-hmm. as part of a team. They're introducing some new uh, features within the game, but then also, you know, consistently every couple of months they've introduced a new hero entirely into the game and then they've also been you know they constantly balance it so they but they buff some heroes they they, they nerf some heroes so they've been um trying to keep it fresh and then the, the the last piece in terms of uh maintaining interest is they introduced towards the end of season two roll lock where it used to be you could have as long as you only had one of each hero on a team you could have any six you wanted mm-hmm. now you have to have two damage two tank and two supports. So that changed the dynamics and made it like kind of a fresh experience. And mm-hmm. then this season, they've introduced the concept of hero bans, where on a rotating schedule, they'll ban a handful of heroes so nobody can play with them. Hmm. And so that also changes the, the gameplay dynamic and just makes it kind of increases the novelty a bit. Um, so they, they kind of have a lot of tools in the toolkit to, to try to keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the game is very fun. It's very well designed. Uh, so, so it is a good game. But the, but the challenge is, even with all these balances, like, you know, Fortnite came out in the interim. Apex mm-hmm. Legends came out in the interim. Now Riot has a new first-person shooter called Valorant, 
Mm. Uh, Valorant's kind of like in between Counter Strike and Overwatch, mm-hmm. and so if you're if you're looking at uh, the the number of people who are playing the game and therefore more likely to be fans of the league, you're seeing them like siphoned off by these new titles. And then when Valorant came out, the Overwatch contender scene, which is like the minor league, um, they like that like the investment in contenders have been kind of going down every year. And a uh, a lot of players, like I think it's like twenty twenty to thirty percent of contenders players, uh, quit their teams, and almost all of them were like, "I'm gonna try to become a Valorant pro because they assume that at some point Riot will set up a professional league in Valorant, and they'll be well positioned to uh, compete there instead of uh, you know sort of trundling along in the minor leagues of Overwatch." I'm speaking with Austin Moorhead, author of Young Guns. He'll be putting up a website soon, so. Just Google his name, Austin Moorhead, to look for more information on what he's doing. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow, like, and comment on my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com, at YouTube under Chris Alvarez, on Facebook and Twitter at Chris Alvarez FCN, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. If you like military history, please check out my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. It's, it's fascinating that there are so many different ways to approach this problem. And, um, and I think it's important because there's, there's such big money behind this. You know, I guess... Robert Kraft um, invested in it, you know, the owner of the Patriots. That's, you know, that's a big deal. I think in, in the book, you call him a whale. Um, yeah. I think that that might be a standard industry term for someone with <laughs> that much money. Is that correct? Or? He's a whale. I mean, he's also a whale to land uh, for an esports league because he, he, he owns the Patriots, who have been the best team in the NFL, like, by a mile mm-hmm. over the course of the past, like, 20 years. Yeah. So it's 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 hard to pick like who what, what American franchise owner would you more want to lend legitimate legitimacy to your league mm-hmm. than than Robert Kraft. Um, but yeah, he came in Sten Kroenke, you know the Kroenke group. They own the uh, Los Angeles Rams and like the Wilpons who own the Mets. Like they they, they bought a team. Um, and then in the book, the Shock are owned by Energy Esports, mm-hmm. and the uh, co-founders there, Andy Miller and his partners, they're co-owners of the Sacramento Kings. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of sports interest um, in Overwatch League. So, and I'm thinking in terms of advertisers too. You know, how as an advertiser, there are so many options. How do you balance? How does the ad? And maybe that's beyond the scope of the book, but it's just a thought in my mind. You know, where where do you you know push your money? Yeah, I mean historically, so the Counter Strike scene is. Um, a, pretty, a little bit rougher around the edges. It's um, it's a uh, it's, it's an environment in which it could be dicey to uh, be a sponsor behind, just because there there's I think would constantly be some kind of issues popping up in terms of controversies on uh, player communications and uh, mm. and then they you know League of Legends was pretty much the game in town. They were sponsored by Coca Cola for a long time, but then riot doesn't have the best reputation in the industry in terms of like how they treat talent and also like how they treat women in their organization so hmm. even there like the sort of like class of esports um had a lot of issues that would if you're if you're a sponsor you'd be a little wary 
And then it's also just, it's almost entirely men who are playing these esports titles because they're typically, you know, either the MOBA games like League of Legends and Dota or it's first person shooters. Mm-hmm. And they're typically also young men um, who have not necessarily started earning a lot of income yet. So it's not like necessarily the most attractive audience to be advertising to, mm-hmm. um, plus all the instability, plus the sort of like risks around. Uh, some of these gamers not being uh, the most uh, camera-ready uh, type of people. So what Blizzard did was they came in, and they kind of they kind of really professionalized it and cleaned it up. And so they said, you know, like you know, Blizzard is is a, everyone I've ever met who's like worked at Blizzard like really loves the organization. They they're a very inclusive uh, place, and so that that was like already part of their culture. And so that that was also going to be part of the league. And then, you know, they're a well-run and professional organization who knows how to talk to sponsors. So mm-hmm. they could kind of crack the code on, um, on bringing in real advertising dollars. And uh, you mentioned this in the book, but I know the Asian market is huge with um, this kind of competitive gaming. Um, is the Asian market a model at all for what is going on in the U.S.? Um, or, is it, or is it just starting their own sort of uh, system in a way. Well, you know, like, uh, sports in, in, in Korea are huge. You know, mm-hmm. they have their own games that, like, really only are played in South Korea, and they have their own leagues, and uh, it's a big deal. I mean, if you're, like, in high school and you're at the top of the leaderboards on whatever the hot game in South Korea is at that time, like, you have, you're, like, big man on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I, I don't know if we can just fully apply the South Korea model they're 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 just they're very into esports mm-hmm. and then China's interesting because there, there's talk now that they're gonna ban uh, Chinese gamers from playing with any non-chinese gamers hmm. so no 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 cross-border gaming with, with Chinese anymore and like no chat no in-game, that means also no in-game chat or anything like that mm-hmm. so I don't I don't think that that we could take that as a model. Um, at least anymore, mm-hmm. and so the 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 thing that's interesting to me will be like, what does the like American version of esports look like? And I think Fortnite's an interesting example. So like as a counterpoint to Overwatch, Overwatch League is like this is what a traditional sports league would look like if it was based on a video game, mm-hmm. and then Fortnite is like a little bit more along the lines of like the WWE, where it's as much about the entertainment value as it is like. Here are the greatest teams in the world competing against each other. So they, they kind of do funny things in Fortnite where they will introduce like a, a brand new item uh, into the game, like like the day of a huge esports tournament with like millions of dollars of prize winning on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll do tournaments where we'll let amateurs kind of play into the tournament like live right there. Mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, America is like a, is a big diverse country. There's a lot of innovative people here. So I think we're going to see as esports uh, catches on, we're going to see. Uh, new models that we maybe hadn't imagined before. And would it be just, uh, for whatever reasons, would it just kind of be an American league or might it include, say, other English-speaking countries like Australia, Britain, you know, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it depends on the league, but like if you look at Overwatch, they, they, they sort of, they call it like a global local hybrid. So, you know, there's teams all over the world. There's teams in China and South Korea uh, now Canada and and uh, you know Paris, London. Um, so, you know, it's one league across the entire globe. But each of these teams is like 
and the plan is for that. The plan was for them to be located in their city this season. That that was uh, obviously cut short by the COVID nineteen pandemic. Mm. But uh, the goal would be for these the, these teams to be locally based but competing in a global league. Mm-hmm. And that's that's like the most ambitious I think the model gets. It like if you look at League of Legends, they basically have three regions: like the Europe region, then the the Americas region, and the Asia Asia Pacific region. Mm-hmm. And they are playing in their own tournaments to ultimately send some teams from their region to the final global tournament at the end of the year. So that's a, that's a different structure that's uh, pretty pretty common in other games too. Just so, just thinking about when you said COVID um, nineteen is cut cut things short um do they need do they need people present watching the players play you know like you know a like a stadium thing going on or could you do it um just online virtually you know with the fans and the players all separated just you know online together yeah that's that's how they're doing it so all, all the matches were streamed online on Twitch the first two seasons, and, then the, and now they switched over to YouTube. So you, you could just you can watch every match uh, online live, or you could watch the recording of it too. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the switch. So the first two years, the players would still be in person on the same stage with an audience watching them play. And the switch this year is now they play from typically their their team facility. Mm-hmm. Um, in an online match, which introduces all kinds of issues of like, do you have the same ping from the server? Like, are each, is each team basically having the same technical experience? And then yeah. when you're all playing on a stage, you can have the technical people make sure there's like no cheating and no ability to cheat. And now there has to be an extra like sharp eye to make sure nobody's trying to uh, introduce an aimbot uh, onto their computers. Mm. Uh, but no, like it, it does transition well. I think I think the people who it's maybe like a little bit harder on are the uh, casting talent, because when everything is like in a studio and like set up for them uh, on premise, there's like a certain way of working, and they get some lead time on things. Now that it's distributed, they're a, a little bit more flying by the seat of their pants in terms of uh, casting the game. So it's, it's actually just kind of getting back to the to, to the old days. Mm. Uh, but it it, it, it is. It's something that is conducive to to having to just split over to full digital. I mean, honestly, even the Blizzard Arena maybe could uh, could seat a total of like 500 people, you know, and like it was pretty rarely sold out. So it's probably usually a few hundred people watching a match, whereas like you'd have tens of thousands watching it online. So it's not a big dip in terms of audience. Uh, it's the thing that it really cut short was. These teams were supposed to be playing matches in their home market, so that local fans could, like, you know, take public transit to like go see their team. Huh. Um, and so that's the part that's got to wait a season. Hmm. So just to kind of step back to that to the book itself, um, how do you break it? Because I see that you follow this team. I guess Energy Sports. I think that you follow their players and that sort of thing. I'm I'm curious how you break down the book between sort of this financial big picture thing and then um you know the personalities involved yeah so the the way i approached it was you know start out with like why is this even happening and so that's walking through you know why is blizzard setting this up and what what do they hope to achieve from it what why are the team owners coming in and paying 20 million dollars for a franchise what is the investment investment rationale from their perspective and then I stepped down to the people who were running the teams and like the considerations they have to make as they're evaluating coach, co- coaching and player uh, hiring decisions. And then down to the coaches and players, like who are these people who are kind of pursuing their lifelong dream 
uh, and then I, I follow them through the course of, uh, of the first season. And then I also, I also recap uh, the, the second season. Are you able to share sort of like uh, the kind of income these players are making? Like, is it up front or is it, do they earn over time in some way? So they earn a minimum of $50,000 salary. That's a, that's just an Overwatch League rule mm-hmm. plus uh, free housing and healthcare. Although the housing can range from, you know, your own apartment to, you know, four guys to in bunk beds in a room, you know, so it just mm-hmm. kind of depends on the, on the team on what housing looks like. Mm-hmm. Team of player preference. Um, but then, you know, the first year, like the only publicly known contract of the first year was Sinatra, who's one of the main characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bidding war for him because he was sort of like the, probably the best talent in North America. And so I think a lot of, he was kind of the apple of a lot of owners' eyes. And, uh, he, his contract was 150000 uh, that first year. And I know two players made more than that. Uh, I, th- I think the highest paid player in season one was probably two hundred twenty-five thousand. But the ma- but I think you know the majority of players were were below a hundred thousand. The average the average salary was probably somewhere in the eighty to ninety range. Um, you know, for the hundred some odd players in the league the first year, mm-hmm. and then that stepped up um, each of the past two years. So I think now, this year in season three of Overwatch League, uh, there's. Probably less than ten, but like more, somewhere in the five to ten range of players are making more than three hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there are still some teams who are definitely still operating kind of shoestring, just trying to pay their players, you know, in that fifty to sixty k range. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I think I think incomes are up, and uh, you know, it's still it's still a far cry from League of Legends. I think average salary in League of Legends is close to a million dollars a year. Uh, and then in Counter Strike, in, in 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 at the highest level of play, it's probably something more like four to five hundred to six hundred thousand a year in salary. Um, and then Fortnite and Dota are kind of weird because they're so there's so much about tournament winnings. Mm-hmm. But um, the top hundred players in those two games probably make more than than uh, Overwatch League players. But the, but then the, the, after that, it's pretty much like Overwatch, Call of Duty, as uh, as as the highest paid esports gigs. Hmm. Um, so I hope that gives you some sense of the, of the compensation of your, so what would you say? So I'm, I'm, this question is about how they find their talent, how they develop their talent. Um, how, how would it break down between, um, the players, uh, per, you know, like reflexes, stamina to, you know, play a long game versus their knowledge of the game itself, you know, just their ability to understand what they're working with. Yeah, so I mean, certain certain heroes within Overwatch are like very reflex dependent, and so, you know, like a character like Tracer, who is, um, you know, kind of low health, so d- dies quite easily. You need to avoid being hit, but also has abilities that make make her much more mobile. And the particular role that Tracer plays during uh, what's called the dive meta, which w- which was the case for most of the first season, Tracer's kind of like if you're playing Tracer, you're kind of on your own. Like out, like uh, harassing the back line of uh, the opposing team. Mm-hmm. So that that type of role is really skill based, and uh, definitely team dynamic uh, is important. Like when you'll eventually come back to the battle. Um, whereas, like if you're a tank or support player, so a tank player is they typically have shield or some other ability to like protect their team, and then support players uh, often like can heal their teammates or in some cases resurrect them. And so those players, your ability to operate in the team dynamic is much more important. Mm-hmm. And so tanks have to think about like 
positioning, like because the team is going to position around the tank. So the tank, the tank has to be skilled at like where should I position based on what I what I'm seeing on their side. Mm-hmm. Um, when do I push forward? When do I retreat? Things like that. Uh, so it depends a little bit on the particular hero you're playing in the game, mm-hmm. uh, but you really need to be pretty good at every one of these elements. I mean, you're, like e- even the guys who are playing tanks or supports have incredible reflexes, mm-hmm. and e- even the people who are sniping or uh, playing tracer, like, they also need to understand the team dynamic too. And then the, the, the sort of lost part is uh, team comms. So there's there's a couple of important things with team comms. First, like not hogging the airwaves, yeah. and, and and so not just like you know shouting uh, out in glee or despair. But then the second thing is uh, actually being really communicative, um, and the uh, sort of the thing that can feed into both of those is like not getting tilted. Mm-hmm. So tilt, tilted just means basically letting the emotions get the best of you. It can mean you know you're dying a lot and you feel like it's not really your fault and your team's not supporting you. So you get better. And then that can cause you to just go silent on comms. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could get emotionally overworked and excited and then you're just dominating the comms. So, um, that's kind of like the, I think the hidden behind the scenes element of the game that I, I hope comes from the book, mm-hmm. but you won't necessarily see if you're just watching a, uh, overwatch league match. How about team chemistry? Is that how, how much does that come into play? Uh, team, team chemistry isn't, important but like there's there's something called a comp a composition which is like which exact six heroes are you playing Mm -hmm. and there's over 30 heroes to choose from and so that's the first step of team chemistry is what can these players actually do together so for instance there's a player that has an ability they send out this like ball that essentially operates like a little black hole like it's like it's like gravity so it sucks the opposing team in Mm -hmm. so as soon as the opposing team is sucked in there's another player uh diva who is a mech suit and diva can jump out of her mech suit and turn it into a bomb and send it in on self-destruct. So that kind of team chemistry is entirely dependent on the, those two abilities. One, one player sucks the opposing team into one spot. The other player sends the bomb in to blow them all up. Mm-hmm. And so that is incredibly important in overwatch because there are certain compositions that will just lose to their composition. Even if there's like a higher, a higher skill level on, on, on one team. But then there's the interpersonal team chemistry, mm-hmm. which is mostly important. Just like you need your players to communicate with each other and you need your players to trust each other. Mm-hmm. So a player needs to know, like, if I'm the tank and I'm going to start pushing, I've got to trust that the rest of the guys on my team trust that I'm making the right decision. And I don't, and like, I don't necessarily even have to say, guys, I'm pushing. They, they'll just see on screen that I'm moving forward and they'll follow me. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have that trust level between the players, you're, I mean, you're just going to get destroyed. By a team that, that, that does have that. Yeah. I'm speaking with Austin Moorhead, author of Young Guns. He'll be putting up a website soon, so just Google his name, Austin Moorhead, to look for more information on what he's doing. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow, like, and comment on my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com at YouTube under Chris Alvarez on Facebook and Twitter at Chris Alvarez FCN, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. If you like military history, please check out my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. So I get the impression the second half of the book um, sticks to the 
the individuals and I guess inter kind of throws in the big picture stuff or it seems like after a while it becomes a tale of their journey in this first season. Is that, yeah, it's it's really the tale of the first season because I, my access to the league was just through the shock. You know, this is a, uh, you know, even though esports is new, it's 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 difficult. It still is difficult. You can't necessarily just. I asked a bunch of teams, like, "Hey, could I follow along for the playoffs?" And uh, most of them said no. And then ultimately, the London Spitfire, who I, I embedded with for the playoff run, mm-hmm. uh, they, they they said yes, just because the general, like, I pitched the general manager. We we were friends. She pitched Jack Etienne, um, and I met him, and they were just they were on board for it. But mm-hmm. you know, other teams I asked were were not necessarily on board. So I was doing the best I could to capture, like, what was the first season based on where I could kind of get access to behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So the stories kind of follow. Uh, we follow along the shock, and then at some point we switch for the playoff run, uh, it switches over to the Spitfire. Mm-hmm. And do they have, uh, is there coaching and training? Like, do they have to be careful they don't overplay, you know, to the point where they're not ready for, for uh, competitions or playoffs and that sort of thing? Yeah, they typically have a pretty easy day before matches. They might do, you know, like one scrim, which would be like a three-hour long session against another team. Um, obviously not, not the team they're going to play the next day. And then, you know, a typical schedule is like anywhere from like, could be anywhere from six to like, you know, could be up to like 12 hours even if they're like doing an intense day. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, typically they're trying to manage the difference between the players want to be continually getting reps because they're, they're changing the game all the time. Mm-hmm. They're seeing other teams experiment with new 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 comp ideas, mm-hmm. so they think they have to be getting those reps to stay at the peak of their game. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, if you're playing 14 hours a day, seven days a week, like you're going to burn out faster. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of you got to manage those two extremes. And can they play other games just for fun, or is it just all Overwatch, you know, and that's it? Yeah, yeah, they can play other games for fun. Like I, I've watched the. Um, when Valorant came out, a lot of the Overwatch pros like went and played Valorant. Mm-hmm. So they can play other games. They can play other games. They can also put it on their personal stream. So there's no uh, there's no limitations there. Hmm. Okay. And it does. And I think you might have said this before, but this this does sound kind of male dominated. But uh, what would you say the ratio is? Well, in the first season when it started, there was I think 120 players, and they were all men. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in halfway through season one, uh, Gregory, who's a woman from South Korea, uh, joined the Shanghai Dragons, mm-hmm. and she remains the only woman in the league, which is now up to over 200 players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, 0.5% women and 99.5% men. Is the league making efforts to change that, or are they? Is that a concern at all? Or yeah, I mean. You know, the, the, the league would love to have a 50-50 balance because, uh, first of all, for in terms of sponsors, like all of a sudden there's all kinds of sponsors you can bring in um, uh, now that you can, like, uh, well, actually, I don't know. There's two things here, right? There's the player balance and there's the audience balance. Mm-hmm. So the player balance is uh, influenced a lot by just who plays the game of Overwatch. And so if you look at statistics on most first-person shooters, uh, like, you know, Counter-Strike or uh, Call of Duty or, like, Halo, uh, you find it's, like, about 90, 90% men. And uh, there have been some some things that have come out that suggest that Overwatch has a, has a little bit higher percentage women. 
but but the highest I've ever seen is like maybe twenty percent are women. So, you know that people who play the game of Overwatch are the people who get good at the game of Overwatch, mm-hmm. and so. You know, there's sort of like upside case, I think, in terms of the professional representation. It's probably something along the lines of whatever the player base. It's like maybe like an 80 20 uh, split. But uh, in terms of the audience, like you, you don't necessarily have, like, just because most of the players are male doesn't mean like the audience has to also be male. You know, like if you look at the NFL, they have a, a pretty good split of, of male female fans, mm-hmm. and uh, it's all men in the NFL. And so I think that they absolutely are trying to broaden that. And part of their strategy there is um, the heroes in the game, a lot of them are women, and they have, like, developed backstories. They, they try to make them seem like real people. And the other thing is, like, to try to, ha- try, try to make the league more inclusive, so n- not to allow, like, toxic behavior among the men, which can be, like, a big turnoff. I mean, it's a turnoff generally, but, like, mm. maybe more so to women. Yeah. So I think they are making efforts. Um, but I think they're, they're kind of fighting against, you know, the fighting is the what is the inherent interest level in watching a first-person shooter, and men just seem to have a higher interest level on first-person shooters. So you mentioned uh, some of the ways in which you gathered information for this book. Um, you know, following following a team, um, talking with people. Are there other what other ways did you uh, did you research uh, what you wrote into this book? You know, for the part about, like, why would you invest in a team, uh, I spoke to, you know, I'm, I'm currently in the investment world, and I, I, I was in the investment world before. Mm-hmm. So I, I spoke to a lot of investors about, like, why would you invest or not invest. I spoke to one, 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 one guy who was considering buying a franchise and just couldn't get comfortable with the investment case. Uh, and then I interviewed uh, Jack Etienne and Andy Miller. The, 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 they run uh, Cloud9 and NRG. Mm-hmm. About why why they they're already esports org owners. Why did they choose to get into Overwatch League in particular uh, to sort of add to their suite of teams? And then uh, in terms of the sort of setup of the league, uh, Monte Cristo, who was like one of the casters in the Overwatch League for the first two years, and was like re- had a strong hand in setting up the, the production side of the talent. So I had access to him to talk about like how how that happened and why that happened. And then uh, I embedded with the San Francisco Shock, so I had access to the players and the coaches, uh, and then also um, Brett Lombach, who was running the team, and t- sort of understanding like how each of those different groups was thinking about um, different decisions made during the course of the year. And then um, on top of those, I basically reached out to people who uh, are very smart in the esports world, like you know Ryan Morrison, who runs Evolve Agency. Uh, represented 80% of the players in the Overwatch League in Season 1. So he's incredibly knowledgeable about trends in, like, player compensation and, like, what, what types of, like, track people need to look out for in these um, in these things. So it's sort of just, like, kind of finding any other experts who are, who are like, around the space that I get introduced to. Mm-hmm. Okay. What part of this research did you find to be most enjoyable? Uh, I very much enjoyed hearing uh, the investors talk about the investment rationale. Um, cause it's like, that's interesting to me. It's, it's what I do for work. But then I also really enjoyed, um, the interviews with the coaches and players. So like talking to Brad Rajani, who is, who, who is the coach of the shock in season one, he, he currently can't, uh, coaches the Atlanta rain. Um, he was kind of this, like part of this lost generation of esports pros who like wanted to be an esports pro, but there just like, wasn't money in it. in like the late nineties and early two thousands. And so he like kind of went and worked like in his dad's business, which is like a healthcare business. And then when the Overwatch League started to like form up, he was he sort of thought like, okay, maybe there's a chance for me to like really pursue my dream, but I'll be a, instead of a player. And so 
like I loved hearing his story and he was like really, really open with information. And then the players are great to talk to because they're like, I'm in my late thirties. All, all these players are not all of them, but most of them are teenagers. So like, I don't really interact with teenagers very often. So it's like, it's definitely very novel to like be asking teenagers like, okay, what's your life like? How did you get into this league? Why'd you do this? How'd you convince your parents that you shouldn't go to college? Like, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely the actual part of uh, in- interviewing people and trying to understand like h- how they got to the Overwatch League. Would you say the players have? Um, do they mostly have similar personalities, or do you see like a, a wide variety of like approaches and attitudes um, to the people who who play play professionally? Oh, there's definitely a wide variety. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, like the most common. The most common is like the, uh, I don't know what percentage of the league, but there's many players who are kind of like, um, kind of quiet. They like grind the game. They're, they're like about the game. But then when you start to see the players who are like a little bit more open, like from a personality perspective, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of all over the map. Like you've, you've got Super, who is a champion trash talker. You know, Super's from Philly. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he's, he's very funny and, um, he enjoys trash talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you, you've got Sinatra who had, he kind of carried this reputation coming into the league that, uh, he was, uh, not the best teammate when he was playing on ladder, which is the, if you just play Overwatch, you and me could just go play Overwatch in the ranked version. And when he was on ladder before the league had started up, he was, he was, uh, extremely good, but not necessarily too kind to his teammates that he thought were worse than him. Mm-hmm. So he found a way to kind of embrace that to like still talk about him being like the best player without like what like kind of be funny about it. So <laughs> you got that and then you got players who were just like kind of like really like like, you know, Gegger, Gegory is like a really positive person. Like her Twitter feed is like she really loves frogs. And so it's like a frog based Twitter feed, you <laughs> know, so she like and the, there's just the, 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 there's a lot of personalities in the league. So I can imagine that players who get too um sensitive and and maybe i don't know what the best word is pout or just like lose it i I, i'd imagine they can't last too long in this environment or or maybe they do it's just the coaches maybe kind of keep them keep them online or or something like that no i mean the the term in the industry is like a player who like gets tilted Mm -hmm. uh it's yeah it's getting tilted is not something that is like long-term sustainable because You know, it's these guys are living in the same house every day. They're spending all their time together, even when they're not gaming. And then when they're in the game, it's six six players with the headsets on. They're like in each other's heads during the game. Mm. And people are emotionally sensitive. Like even if you appear to be doing all the right things from emotion wise, if there's like an edge to your voice or something, it's it's kind of amazing. It, it can really poison the team dynamic. And so if I think teams realize like through the course of season one that like regardless of like the talent level or like how much you might need a certain player, mm-hmm. like if they are the type to get tilted or to like become like selfish, like that is just so toxic to the, to the ability of the team to work together mm-hmm. that you kind of have to like, you either you figure out a way to help them manage that or you like got to move on from it. Do you think most teams end up having like a, uh sort of a de facto leader, like not voted on or anything, but just one personality maybe, you know, dominates and not in a, in a negative way, but maybe leads, leads more than the rest. Uh, yeah. So within game that would be called typically called the shot caller, which mm-hmm. is like someone who's like saying like, 
okay, we're in this fight right now, but what we should do is move over to that point. You know, we sure we should retreat or whatever. And so there's always one shot caller. Sometimes there's sort of like two, like, um, uh, you know, w w one of the players could, for instance, have just been killed and is respawning, so can't make the shot call. Um, but typically there is a lead shot caller. And then in terms of uh, team leadership, that, that can be the same or often it's just not the same. So, yeah, I mean, you just see people's natural leadership abilities show up there. Hmm. Uh, what did you find um, that was most surprising to you in your research? I was surprised that when I asked the question of how did you convince your parents that you shouldn't go to college, how like easy that conversation was. Like, you know, for like super, he was like, well, I'm one of the best in the world at this. Of course I'm going to do it professionally. Yeah. Yeah. And then with Sinatra, it was like, I knew my mom was on board. We just like had to convince my dad. And it was like one Christmas dinner. I'm convinced I should pursue this. And then, you know, like Moth was like in college and I met his parents and they were funny. They were like, yeah, his brother told us, they were like, hey, did you know Grant, which is like Moss' first, first name? You know, Grant's like one of the best players in America at Overwatch. And his parents were like, I didn't even know he liked gaming that much. <laughs> you know? So when I met them, she was like, you know, I definitely, of course I hope he goes back to college and finishes. I don't know if that's just the mom and me. So, but it's just like, you know, I, I was amazing how, it was amazing how receptive it was. Because when I was in high school, there was still like a massive stigma around gaming at all in general. But like the idea that this would now be a, a, like an alternative to college mm -hmm. uh, kind of blew my mind. We're already there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, college can wait. You can always go back and finish it. Um, yeah. What was the most uh, difficult uh, part of the research to do? You know, it's it, it can be the, the hard part is when you're like when you want access to people and it's fine. People are kind of fine to be like the fly in the wall part mm. of the access. But then when you want to start interviewing the players, first of all, the players are like already under this massive are in a microscope like they're all they're always being filmed you know they're always on stream or they're on camera or there's documentarian filmmakers coming in and everything you can imagine mm -hmm. um and so you know fighting to get that time to like actually get the one-on-one -on -one interviews was uh it was just it was just tricky because there was like the only strong incentive to do it was really me pushing for it and a few players actually were pretty happy to talk to me and share their stories mm -hmm. But I found that to be the tricky thing to navigate. Like how pushy should I be to like get, go ahead and get this done? And then in terms of like, it was very hard to get follow-up interviews because especially like in the beginning, this was very uncertain. But then by the end of the first season, it was like, oh no, this is a going concern. We had like viewer tip numbers. It was pretty clear this thing was work. So then there were, it was like set up a little bit like people kind of tightened up in the way like mm -hmm. how like an NFL team today is very tightened up. They started moving that direction. So that was difficult uh, on the research front. But, like, the thing is, people really were very open. Mm -hmm. um, like, once you sat down to talk to them, they, they, they would really tell you anything. Uh, it was more just, like, pushing, pushing to get the thing scheduled. It would be a little tricky. Do they, do they have, uh, since you mentioned they're on camera a lot, do they have, like, hairdressers or anyone tending to their, like, their looks? Oh, yeah. They do their hair, they do makeup, they put, like, foundation on them so they look good on camera and, like, not shiny. Hmm. They have to have their uniforms pressed. Uh, so sort of a second part to the difficulties in the research thing. Was there any particular question uh, that you would have really liked an answer to but didn't get one that satisfied you? Or The main one was I wanted to talk to Nate Nanzer, who was the commissioner of the league, and set this whole thing up. Mm -hmm. And he just 
you know, I tried many times, uh, and ultimately he decided he wasn't going to be involved in the project. So I would have loved to have picked his brain about like, you know, setting up the franchise model, uh, and like, how did he land those first owners and like, what were those conversations like? But I didn't get that chance. And then, you know, like coming around to season two, I, when I was like thinking about like, I'll, I'll just try one more time. And then he, uh, left the Overwatch League for Fortnite. So he runs, he runs Fortnite's esports now. So I, I wish I could have talked to him, but that's, that's, that's one bigger regret. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe he didn't want to let something slip about his, 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 uh, the things he wanted to do. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I mean, probably just like looked at it like, well, there's risk to talking to this writer and unclear what the reward is. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, was there anything that emotionally moved you during your research, either something negative or positive? Uh, yeah, definitely the fan experiences. So the things that I liked were I, w I would see these like, dads who brought their son who was like you know 13 or 15 years old from across the country to watch this overwatch league match and i'd talk to the dad i'd be like what i was like what do you think of this and they're like i talked to like five different dads and they also the exact same thing is that i have no idea what's going on but i think it's great you know like they could see the kids were into it they you know it's like the sound system there like the sort of screen is amazing mm -hmm. um so i thought it was cool to see like you know father son like bonding around this like uh this activity so apart from being sort of a history or an analysis of what's going on here, um, what do you hope the book will do for readers? I think a couple of things like there's some really inter I think there's, there's some compelling characters in here. And uh, I think it it's going to introduce you to these characters. And if you if you like one of them, and you want to follow along. You can you can follow them. They, they all stream themselves. Uh, they're all over social media. And so um, I hope to introduce readers to some characters that they might want to kind of kind of follow along in their progress. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second thing is that there, there is a, a large group of people who have this somehow the, this idea that esports is like a flash in the in the pan. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is complete nonsense. Like this is this is here to stay. It's going to be growing uh, uh, rapidly. I think probably it's going to be growing 15 percent a year from a from a uh, industry revenue perspective for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, this is eventually, we're, we're going to have esports at the Olympics. Like this is going to be a part of our lifetime. So, if, you know, it, like, first of all, I think maybe understanding why that's the case mm -hmm. and, uh, and then, and then sort of, uh, taking that on board is like the, the, the new reality for the world. Do you think it's, um, how long will it take for it to settle into whatever form it takes? Or do you think it's already just about there. No, I think there's going to be more disruption in esports than you see in traditional sports. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, football and basketball were around for, in some form, you know, like rugby or like for a long time before they were professionalized into sports. But these are, these are games like based on IP that takes years and years to create. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, new games come out. So there's like, the, there's naturally a lot more disruption in the market. One. But then two, it's still very unclear if um, the traditional sports model is the right model for esports. Like maybe this thing Fortnite's doing that's a little bit more fun and goofy, maybe that's the right model. Or maybe there's a model that like hasn't 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 been developed yet. Mm -hmm. So I think that I'm not sure that we'll see it ever solidify as much as we see like NFL and NBA solidifying. Is there much of a problem with um cheating or hacking or, or any of the technical difficulties in in completing playoffs not in the big esports leagues 
they had actually in the, in, the, in in League of Legends in the in the China League, the, the highest level of league of league play there, they had a match fixing issue. Um, but yeah, I mean the the cheating typically they're playing like on league hardware, mm-hmm. and also they have league officials who are like watching that like a hawk. Mm-hmm. So cheating is not common. Um, the th- I think the thing to be wary of is like the match fixing, as um, like the like Nevada just authorized, for instance, Overwatch League for sports betting. Hmm. So there's always that sort of thing that that sort of like danger of like you know the thing going on with like Pete Rose or like you know rumor of other athletes hmm. of uh, making more money by fixing a game um, than from whatever your salary is from 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 the league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can just. Thinking about sports betting and, and this gaming, you know, you have your over under, like you know how. Well, I don't actually, since I don't play Overwatch, I'm not sure how what the scoring system is like. If it's you know whoever's left standing wins, or if there's any kind of um, other way, other final numbers that you could bet on. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you you sort of com- complete objectives on the map, and the team that completes more, you know, that you know sometimes you're pushing a cart a certain distance so that. The team that pushes the cart farthest wins that map, mm-hmm. and then ultimately, the team that wins three maps first is the is the winner of the match. But there's kill death ratios. Um, there's you know the amount of healing done. There's um, all there's all kinds of metrics you could potentially bet on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would bet something along the lines of like total kills or kill death ratios would be the first uh, stats probably to show up, mm-hmm. uh, along with just the match win. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to gambling, people will gamble on just about any any aspect of, of what they're watching, so um, legally or illegally, you know. Yeah, I mean, look, if someone will, is willing to set the line, then yeah, people people will bet on it. Yeah. So you discussed some of the difficulties you had in uh, finishing the book. You know, some of the people who you weren't able to interview, but uh, were there any other difficulties in in getting it finished or published? I, the Hachette team has been great. Um, I really like all the people I've worked with over there. Mm-hmm. I think the other the, the other pieces were like uh, it's it's just it's so hard to write a book. I mean, it really is. It's mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. I wanted the challenge, but to weave together, I went into this league right. I had access to the shock. I had no idea how they were going to perform in season one. I didn't know how the league was going to go at all. Mm-hmm. And so, like finding my way through of like okay. Uh, uh, transitioning from the shock to the Spitfire as like uh, characters in the book, uh, that was difficult—a difficult transition. The transition from like how is the league all structured and why is this happening to now here's the story of the people who are going through the league. Uh, I, f- I found it very difficult to sort of like tie all that together, in, like v- like very neatly. I still think there's like kind of some rough edges in those transition points. Hmm. So were you sort of given a commission to write the book before you had written it? Like you had pitched the idea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I, had a, I wrote a proposal. So like my first proposal that didn't go anywhere uh, was like 80 pages. And then the, then I like wrote a whole new proposal that I think was only probably more like 50 pages. Mm-hmm. And then that goes to, uh, you know, it was a Hachette. And then they say, oh, yeah, we like this. Here's the advance we're thinking about offering you. And then here's your editor and that kind of thing. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think on non on nonfiction you really you really need that because otherwise I would just be going to to these team team owners and saying, hey, I'm like a random guy in the street <laughs> who's hoping that I'll have a good book and then we'll sell it later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was wondering about. How much of a fan did you become as you were following these teams? 
So I, I had I don't think I'd ever even watched an esports match before Overwatch League. So I, I was not really an esports fan. Gen- I'm, actually, I'd watched some StarCraft. I'm not sure. I watched some StarCraft tournaments before. And I play a game called Magic, and I'd watch Magic. I'd watch Magic games online. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I wasn't like a League of Legends or Counter Strike uh, esports fan, and so that was pretty new to me. But uh, I liked it. Like I, I, I I'll, I'll watch like the, the Shocks big matches. I'll watch. I'll definitely watch the playoffs. And I'm going to go to the grand finals again. The grand finals are awesome. It's like it, th- that is really an experience if you're an esports fan. Mm-hmm. Try to go to one of these Overwatch League grand finals. So. I mean, I'm a fan. I'll follow the Overwatch League for the rest of my life. But I think more like, more like the same way I am of like baseball. Where like baseball, I, I don't follow the Braves that much, but I, but I'll watch the playoffs mm-hmm. and I'll go to a few games a season with like some friends. So it's kind of in that, I think it's probably in that tier for me, like lifetime wise. Okay. Uh, what's your next writing project? So I, I don't know. I, I originally had an idea, but I don't have a home for it at the moment. So I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of searching around mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, I'd like to do something that's a little bit more participatory, so something more along the lines of, of Paper Lion, try to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I haven't quite decided yet. Okay. Uh, where can people find you on the on the web, social media or website or anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just at FB29. Uh, or uh, I, I actually have – I need to set up my website, don't I? Uh <laughs> Maybe I'll send you a note. You can put it in the you can put it in the notes of the podcast that my website's up. Okay, okay, um, I'll do that. All right, uh, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Uh, no, just thank you for having me on. Thank you. It was really interesting. Thank you for listening. You can find more interesting information like this on chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. You can also find the podcast on your favorite podcast feed under the title Full Contact Nerd. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please remember to rate this podcast. It really helps. We're on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, and on Twitter at Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.